In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm live here from the East Atlanta Bureau of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in our boss's living room as we just finished up a three or four hour long retreat to talk about next year's legislative session. And this, this year we had a special guest in person, live and in person. Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. Yes, it's great to join the team. And we are talking all about the session. We're talking about elections in 2020. And AJC listeners, readers, subscribers are in store for so much great coverage starting in, well, starting now, of course, but ramping up for 2020. And in the middle of this uh, retreat, we had some breaking news. And we'll get to that first because we have lots of other topics to talk about. But let's first talk about... Tom Graves, who announced via press release, uh, sh- shocking most of the political world, because by, by my text messages, just about no one who should have known knew about this is not standing for re-election next year. Yeah, it's very interesting because you can, you know, he planned to do this. It, it wasn't rash. You can, it was a coordinated announcement, but it doesn't look like he gave a lot of people a heads up, which is interesting because usually, you know. Um, when an announcement of this type is made, the person kind of has some one-on-one heads up or at least sends, you know, insiders the news before he spreads it far and wide. And that is not what Representative Graves did, apparently. And the timing is very curious. Uh, We haven't heard from him directly at all. Uh, He wrote a long letter saying that it's time to you know, there's a season for everything and it's time to move on. But he didn't give a specific reason other than his wife is, is about to retire and he wants to spend more time with family. That's that's usually the, the reason. But he didn't give another reason for why he's retiring. But the timing is very interesting because it comes a day after Governor Kemp appoints Kelly Leffler to the U.S. Senate. We'll talk a lot more about that in a few minutes. But given that timing, one day after, um, Graves is one of the people who was seen as a top contender for the seat but never actually applied. Um, I think uh, I think if you talk to some of his supporters, they thought he never really would have a, have had a shot if he had applied because um, the governor was intent on going with someone who was unorthodox, right? Who, and who then, wasn't a political insider. And then the kind of the alternative candidate became Representative Doug Collins. So it's like he wasn't the the Kemp guy and he wasn't the Trump guy alternative either. So it kind of left him out of that that discussion. Mm-hmm. He's had a very interesting career arc. Um, he was someone who burst in the scene in the Georgia House when he was 32, elected to the to the General Assembly in Georgia, and 
quickly fell out of favor with Republican leadership. I remember he had this House caucus somewhere on the second floors, the two the two nineteen caucus uh, of of just a few people, but they were the they were the, a handful of Republicans who were the kind of forerunners for the Tea Party movement. They voted no on a lot of legislation that the House leadership team, Speaker Glenn Richardson and his allies really wanted a, you know, a lockstep votes on. They wanted to show unity. And and Tom Graves and his allies would vote no, no, no on a lot of those bills. Yeah, it's been interesting reading the archives, a lot of the previous AJC coverage, as I'm learning about Representative Graves being new to the job. And um, he has, cha- you can tell the tone has changed because I've, of course, met with him as a new reporter in Washington, and he seemed to be a lot more chill, a lot more deliberative. He was speaking about the bipartisan committee on modernization that he was so amped up about, which is clearly a very different Tom Graves than than his days in the General Assembly. Yeah, when he was elected to the U.S. House in 2010, he was uh, quickly embraced by the Tea Party movement. He was a you know a champion of of fiscal conservatism, and again, just like he was in the Georgia House, he was taking off a lot of leadership in the in the U.S. House as well. But then, as you mentioned, he kind of transformed as he got more seniority. He became uh, more pragmatic. Right. And I think he realized that you know he was dealt some tough losses and decided to go along to get along, and. Um, that just makes it so curious because he seemed to be like he was going to become the most senior member of Georgia's delegation once Senator Isaacson retired at the end of the year. And he was already the senior most member of the House delegation, which confers some responsibility and influence. Right. So it's like he was in a pretty good position. And so for him to announce he won't run, and we need to be clear, a lot of Republicans are not running for re-election because they're in tough districts that would be hard to win, and they just don't feel like going through all the campaign and fundraising that would be required. That is not the position Tom Graves is in. Not at all. He won his election last year with 77% of the vote. It's one of the most conservative districts in Georgia. It's the first or second most conservative in Georgia, depending on how you look at it and one of the most conservative districts in the Eastern Seaboard. Um, he's never really faced a, a well-funded Democratic challenger and, and really didn't have to worry about a Republican primary challenger of any significance either. So it's not like he was facing electoral pressure like Rob Woodall, the other Republican who from Georgia's delegation who announced he wouldn't run. And Rob Woodall announced it seven or eight months ago, but he was. He narrowly won election last year and was really in the, in the, in the target sites this year, this, this coming election. Right. So, you know, we know that's not the reason is because it's not like he had a serious concern. It looks like right now of not being elect reelected. So that's just leaving everyone kind of scratching their heads like, well, what's going on here, Tom? Give us some answers. And as as far as we know right now, there's no we have not heard definitive word if he's interested in the U.S. Senate run or what what he's going to do next. But again, the timing uh, raised a lot of speculation, and and of course we I mentioned this earlier, but the timing raised speculation because of the other big topic we're talking about, which was just a day ago on Wednesday, Kelly Leffler, um, financial executive, was named the new U.S. Senator, someone you'll be working with a lot. You'll be covering, uh, spending a lot of your time covering her first days in office once she takes office in January. A big moment in Georgia politics and a big moment for Governor Kemp. Yes, and it was interesting. We were talking a lot as journalists 
the day before the announcement as to who was going to show up for her, how would people show up for her. And for the most part, most of the Republican establishment has got in line. You know, their their different reactions range from look forward to working with her to she's a great person and I and she'll be great. You know, there's a there's different ways people lent their support, but there wasn't the the out and out opposition that some people feared. Yeah, it was really interesting because you saw a, a range of, of reactions. Um, I, there was, I think, concerns from some of her supporters that that Governor Kemp would be almost alone with her in the room. Now, of course, that didn't happen. It was packed to the gills. There was many, many senior Republican lawmakers and officials in the governor's ceremonial office. Um, but not all of them were supporters of hers. Um, it was intended as a show of support, and it did seem, you know, like that. But you know, one of the pe- people right next to the governor was House Speaker David Ralston, um, also up from North Georgia, uh, from Doug Collins's district, who who remains very close to Doug Collins. And uh, although he was at the press conference, he made clear afterwards that in a statement that it was not an endorsement, he said he looked forward, as you've said, to working with her, to learning about learning more about her, because she is a unknown quantity to many, many, many of these Republican influential leaders. Yeah, and I was so interested, you know, um, when when people dissected her resume, some people who, some very conservative Republicans wondered if she was Republican enough, conservative enough because of some of the things they saw, some of her previous campaign contributions and um, her business dealings with the WNBA. So it seemed like they were so adamant yesterday at like, no, she's an abortion opponent, a second rights, second amendment uh, supporter and everything you want, quote unquote, good Republicans to say, they kind of made sure that was either said or emphasized yesterday. Yeah. And that was a result of the process because look, you know, she, she, she applied right before the deadline on November 18th, so you know, about three weeks ago, um, was when her application came in. And at that moment, it was very clear to pretty much every insider in Georgia politics that she was the pick, or else it wouldn't have been that, you know, that on the verge of a deadline. Um, she used words that Governor Kemp embraces, right? Like hardworking Georgians and political outsiders. So it seemed to be, a, a, you know, a inspired at least by Governor Kemp. And then, of course, about six or seven days ago, um, we reported what, what most people had figured, which was that she was going to be Governor Kemp's pick. Um, and in that intermeeting weeks, you had a relentless onslaught from conservative critics, um, many of them from out of state, saying, questioning her abortion stance, questioning her support for Trump, criticizing her past campaign contributions to, to Democratic candidates, um, criticizing that W co- the, the her the WNBA's um, uh, you know participation in a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood, all these different issues that came up, and she couldn't defend herself. So instead of that being that unveiling being of an introduction, it was like you said, almost like more of a defense. Right, and I think it's um, it'll be interesting to see how she moves forward now that. You know, before there was it was somewhat of a defense, you know, first she had to apply. Then Governor Kemp had to defend why he was appointing her. But now that it's pretty much official and he has the final word. Now it's kind of like, what will she do in this role? Who will she hire as staff? How many holdovers from the Isaacson or how many 
folks will she grab from some of the other congressional offices in Georgia and, and things like that. It'll be interesting just really to see how she actually establishes herself in this role. Her speech was very interesting, too, because um, she wanted to make sure that there was no wiggle room and there was no room between space between her and, and President Trump. She, she called herself pro-Second Amendment, pro-Trump, pro-Wall, pro-conservative judges. So she made it very clear that she was going to be a reliable conservative voice. And that's important because all those critics were, were pointing to Doug Collins, the, uh, the, the congressman who actually represents the district right next to Tom Graves, who was endorsed by President Trump who is endorsed by a lot of these grassroots activists that have an outsized role in Republican Party politics here in Georgia, and um, who is at the center of a lot of attention also from Fox News, because you saw Sean Hannity and Lou Dobbs, among the others, who went on a very kind of forceful spree uh, in recent days, pushing Doug Collins over Kelly Loeffler. Loeffler hard. And I think we can do a whole nother podcast just about that because it was so interesting, you know, especially when I saw my old friend from Florida, Representative Matt Gates, weighing in. And that totally backfired in a way, you know, because what it did was it galvanized Georgians to say, hey, wait a minute, you don't come from Florida and tell us how to run our state. You don't come from outside and and think you're going to bully our governor. And it was just so interesting just to see that dynamic whoever you know Kelly Leffler was in the middle this time but it really wasn't about her at all it was more about you know that 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 bullying that some Mm -hmm. people perceived from outsiders and again that whole we're Georgia we're not going to let outsiders tell us what to do you're exactly right it was a tactical move from them because you know if you're Governor Kemp the last thing you want to do is attack President Trump or or even attack some of the Georgia activists and there's many of them who have who have criticized um kelly leffler so instead they found the juicy target matt gates uh some of the invective they used was was just jaw-dropping yes away, right? i was like "Ooh, yeah, some of those nuclear. tweets <laughs> the, ryan mahoney one of the governor's top strategists questioned whether he was you know he had he was wearing jorts or fit Legos and jelly beans. By the way, I do like jelly beans a lot. But Legos and jelly beans and and Pokemon cards in his pockets. Others were mocking his misspellings and saying, get out of Georgia, stay out of Georgia. All that stuff. It made it, instead of a Washington versus Georgia battle, it made it a Georgia versus Florida battle. And if you look at a recent football record, that's a good thing for, for the States. And it also, I was also, it was interesting because it's not like there were people backing up Matt Gates besides, you know, the Fox um, national folks, that the national didn't... kind of Fox News folks and, and a few other national folks. But there wasn't this big outpouring from, you know, other other his peers or his colleagues saying, no, he's got a point or no, you guys are being too mean to our friend Matt Gates. He just kind of was out there fighting this battle and it was like um he got overpowered because there were so many people coming at him yeah there's no i stand for gates hashtag or anything like that yeah i didn't see that well the the her announcement on wednesday was not a surprise everyone in the room had known for days um that that she was going to be the new next u.s senator and her speech was something of a you know it was interesting but the, the fact that she was Pro-Trump was not a huge surprise because um, given the political state of, of Georgia today, uh, even though she's, there's no primary, she couldn't afford not to come out and, and come, come out swinging for President Trump. But what was a big surprise was the fact that her advisors say that she's seeding her campaign 
from day one with $20 million of her own cash. $20 million. Now, is that just for 2020 or is that including carryover to 2022? They didn't specify, but I imagine this 2020 race will cost well beyond $20 million. I mean, you know, I I think it's going to shatter fundraising records. And if you look just south in Florida... Um, where you had uh, right um, Governor Scott. Governor Scott spent sixty million of his own money last year's campaign to win a Senate race. Now, of course, Florida's a far bigger state, but Georgia's been shattering record after record after record state records as well. So, um, I expect she'll use all twenty million of that of those dollars. And imagine the win bonuses or or the bonuses for her campaign staff, which she's building right now. Yeah, that's I mean, that's just an amazing amount of money to think someone's going to write their own check. But that is, you know, clearly that's one of the reasons why she was an attractive candidate, because she can self-finance. And and if if she has a formidable Democratic opponent, which it's interesting right now, you know, that we kept hearing Democrats are waiting to see who's the pick before they jump in the race. Right now, we haven't had new Democrats jump in the race. I mean, it's only been a day yeah. as of this taping. And Democrats might want to let Republicans continue to duke it out, although we could have an announcement you know, any, any minute now. But if you're, if, you're the, if you're a Democratic strategist, you also might want to let um, you know, all this infighting continue, and along with this news about graves and, and all the speculation that entails. Um, but it's a really interesting spot because at one hand, now you know why the the National Republican Senatorial Committee and Mitch McConnell were said to have, you know, loved the idea of Kelly Leffler running because that relieves the fundraising pressure on them. Right. Not, you're not going to have, you know, a lot of a, a huge amount of money coming from. You'll still have some, but a huge amount of money coming from Washington to support her because she's got her own bank account. The, on the other hand, um, Republicans like Doug Collins and Democrats can both kind of take aim at this millionaire, you know, little known uh, uh, first time candidate. Right. Buying her seat. Exactly. The way that Democrats have accused her of. And also, we can't forget the fact that just by virtue of her being a woman gives the Republican members of the Senate something different. I mean, the Senate is overwhelmingly white and male and particularly on the Republican side. So, you know, I do think the fact, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, wanting to appeal to moderate women in the suburbs of Atlanta, but it's also just nationwide. The Republican Party is trying to show that, like, we do want more diversity amongst our ranks. And no, the racial diversity is not the box she checks, but she does check, you know, the box of not being another white male um, filling a Senate seat. And as you know, it's a, it's a Georgia Republican Party dominated by white male elected officials. Every statewide elected official in Georgia, except for one, is a white male. And that, that one is Trisha Pridemore, who's on the Public Service Commission. So not the highest profile of, of positions. And women who have run for, for, for Senate and, and, and governor have lost, sometimes narrowly, but they've lost over the, over the years. Um, but for both parties, for 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 Democrats too, um, but it'll it'll present a different sort of slate for 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 Georgia Republicans because last year we saw a very diverse Democratic candidate slate of led by Stacey Abrams, who would have been the state's first African American um, governor and one of the nation's first Black female governors. Um, but also down the ticket, right? You had you had some old white older white men and, and white women and. African American women, so you had a you had a very diverse slate up against again, uh, pretty much all white male 
ticket on the across the aisle. Right. And that's something I think, you know, uh, Republicans are very cognizant of it, but it's just been it's been a hard um, issue for them to solve because the policy issues um, tend to turn off some of that diversity that they would like to attract yeah. back into the big tent, if you will. It'll, um, this is a huge gamble for, for, for Governor Kemp, and that can't be understated because he could have gone with a safer choice. Not maybe, you know, may, he. I don't think he was ever leaning towards Doug Collins because to him, I think Doug Collins represents the establishment that that, that never really liked him or never backed him. Um, not just last year, but even long before that. But he could have gone with someone who was an elected official who was more experienced politically and who was more of a tried and true asset uh, conservative instead of someone who's very little known, even in Republican circles. But I think he's looking at, we've talked about this, but not just next year, but 2022. Right. He's on the ballot. That's right. And he's, I mean, like any good politician, he's not just concerned about other people's races. He's concerned about his own. And he's concerned about, you know, who the Democrats might nominate again in 2022, a rematch with Stacey Abrams in 2022. And um, the more he can, you know, get people excited about voting for Republican candidates, the more that will benefit him being at the top of the ticket. And he has a chance to pick his own running mate in, in with that senator. And he picked Kelly Leffler as, as his running mate. Now, let's talk about what she's got to do over the next couple of days, because this is not um, this is not a. This is a U.S. Senate appointee, not a candidate, right? If this was a candidate, what you'd see now is going a media blitz, talking with every reporter she can possibly find, going out to Savannah and Macon and talking with local TV stations and meeting with editorial boards and all the stuff that candidates usually do. But she's not a candidate. She's a U.S. senator. Right. And, and also one who's not used to, she's definitely used to the media because she had a high-ranking position um, at a, her financial company, um, but she's not used to being a candidate. So what I think, or doing politics, or doing, oh yeah, or, or talking politics, or talking about these issues. So um, they've, she's been preparing for this right for a few weeks, um, if not more than that. But she also needs to go out there and meet a lot of these grassroots activists who are so skeptical of her. And I think that's really uh, the top of the list right now for what she's doing, probably as we speak. Yeah, and um, you know, she's got to go to get to Washington and meet with Senator Isaacson. He he told me last week that they were friends, and so they're already familiar with each other. But now there's a transition that needs to happen. Um, she's got to learn the ins and outs. As someone who's new in Washington, <laughs> I can tell you that there's a lot to learn. Just about finding the nearest bathroom sometimes can be difficult in the capital. It's 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 a maze. And so just the mechanics of Washington and, and being a U.S. senator and where's her office going to be, she has to start talking with Mitch McConnell about what um, committees are available for her to join, um, you know, th- things like that. A constituent services office, all that. And it's interesting uh, with McConnell because we mentioned, we touched on this before, but McConnell said earlier this week, even before she was announced, that the NRSC will treat her as an incumbent, um, which is a big deal. They don't, they don't necessarily, they didn't necessarily have to. They, they, in their charter, they have to 
defend and protect incumbent lawmakers, but there's sort of a loophole, as I understand, where they didn't have, they could see her as a placeholder, not an incumbent. Um, and that support will be helpful for her, even if she doesn't need necessarily need the cash infusion, just the status that it, that it confers on her um, with the NRSC's backing will help maybe, she hopes, ward off challengers. And I think the biggest thing that could help her ward off challengers, though, is that $20 million wall that she, That's she's building right. on her I campaign. mean, but she'll still need to raise money just to mm-hmm. show that support. You know, she, doing it on her own won't you know, Governor Scott mm-hmm. could do it on his own because he had been governor for eight years and was a known entity as a new entity. She's still, like you said, going to have to get out there and get that support on her own, raise the money. She's going to have to go to Washington and kind of show that she's she's a Trump defender the way, you know, think about it. She's probably going to have to vote on in, articles of impeachment in January. Yep. Um, so uh, there will be opportunities right away for her to prove what type of Republican she is. Exactly. And and, and the, her supporters in the Governor Kemp camp can't wait for those opportunities, right? Because because Doug Collins has been all over TV and radio. And, and, he, and right now, as we speak, he's involved in impeachment hearings and kind of, you know, becoming a household name among Republican Trump supporters. Um, and so su- pretty soon, Kelly Leffler will have a chance to also get on the airwaves, get free media, get a lot of attention. Um, we don't know whether Congressman Collins will, will actually run. He has threatened to run. He said he's strongly considering a run. And then at the moment the announcement was made at around 10 a.m. on Wednesday, he sent out a statement saying, Governor's got a, a, the right to do whatever he wants to do. I'm focused on impeachment. So still not ruling out that potential challenge that could that could really divide the Republican Party, whether it comes from Doug Collins or whether it comes from Tom Graves. Right. And Doug Collins is a, now that Collins and Graves are kind of unknown entities. I think if you're Kelly Leffler, you have to even more so focus on like immediately establishing yourself as like the kind of senator that Georgia wants, the kind of senator that not only makes Governor Kemp happy or saying I made the right choice, but that indicates to President Trump that she's the right choice. Because if not, you can tell there are folks waiting in the wings for, you know, for a sign of a show of weakness or a sign of a vulnerability yeah. that they think will allow them to kind of ease in. Well, Tia, you're going to have your hands full when you get back into Washington in a couple of days. Very busy. That's all for this edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Visit AJC.com slash politics for all the latest in Georgia news. I'm Greg Bluestein signing off. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.